the 38th episode of The Morning Rage. I'm your host, Jen Prentice. And I'm your co-host, Lauren O'Keefe. And this is not your mom's morning show. It's a space where we pop off about all things culture, society, and politics in order to help you unpack your beliefs, feel more confident in sharing your voice. And today, Lauren and I pull out our editorial hats and talk about media literacy. We are going to attempt to help you figure out what's real and what's fake in the news what it means for a news source to be credible, and how in this really chaotic world with a 24-hour news cycle, we can figure out what information we should care about and why. But first, welcome back, Lauren. It wasn't the same without you last week. Thanks, Jen. It's so good to be back in person. And you really held it down last week. I really enjoyed that episode. Thank you. That means a lot. But it's better better together, Lauren. Oh, better together. Uh, you really came back and wow, <laughs> things are happening. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> All over the world, in the U.S., here in California, everywhere. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to lie. My head is spinning and I'm feeling really heartbroken as most folks are over everything going on in the news right now. So I'm really glad that we're having this conversation today. Okay, that's good. I was wondering if you would think that it was a good thing or a bad thing that we're having this conversation to uh, analyze the news. Well, you know, it makes me a bit nervous because obviously anytime we decide to pick apart the media, like there's lots of sides, lots of ways to skin this cat, I guess you could say. But I think the timing obviously couldn't be better. There's so much information out there and people need to know how to sift through it, what's true, what's important for them. And how to respond to other people and also with how we allow it to affect our day-to-day lives. Yeah. I do get the sense from your face, though, that you don't just want to talk about uh, media literacy. I get the sense (laughs) from your face. Note for the audio, Lauren has a crazy look in her eye today (laughs) that she has a specific pop-off in mind first. Is that true? Mm, Yes, 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 it is. Because you know what we got in the mail this week, Jen? We got our gubernatorial recall election ballots for California for the special election on September 14th. And you guys, I can't, I can't hold it any longer. I gotta pop off. No, 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 no. We can't do this. On a previous podcast episode, we talked about how people are leaving California in droves. Talking about the recall election <laughs> is not going to make people want to move here and stay here. I know. I know, Jen. It's very true. There's uh, lots of reasons at the moment to leave California. I totally get it because I did a deep dive on each of the candidates who is hoping to succeed Gavin Newsom. And wow, <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Well, all right. I'm going to let I'm going to let you pop off about this. <laughs> but first, why don't you provide some context for our listeners who do not live in California or those who live in California but have said, screw it, I just don't care, which is a reasonable response when you look at the insane ballot that we were given this week. But Lauren, tell us why this recall election is even happening. Okay, so in California specifically, we are a little recall happy here, they would say. So in the state of California, we have the most recalls that ever happen in any state in the U.S., It happens a lot where people are trying to recall the governor, but it's really only hit the ballot twice. So this is only the second time that it is actually qualifying for the ballot. So this is a Republican-led effort to oust Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom. As I said, it's only the second time that this recall attempt has actually made it on the ballot. The first was Democratic Governor Gray Davis, 
who was successfully recalled in 2003 and replaced by Republican candidate Arnold Schwarzenegger. Remember this? I sure do. (laughs) And talk about history repeating itself, because we got a lot of so-called actors and public figures that have come out in droves to join the recall election. You guys, it's a real doozy. So I'm going to break down some of these folks. But first, looking at all these candidates has led me to a question. Who can run in a recall? And how do these folks even get on the ballot? We have 46 people on this election ballot. That's a great question, and I think one that's relevant for even people who don't live in California. Like, who can run in a recall election? How do you get on a ballot? Tell us. So candidates to replace the governor must be U.S. citizens registered to vote in California. They have to pay a filing fee of about $4,000, which honestly is a lot less than I thought it would be. But a lot more than I think some of these candidates have. (laughs) (laughs) Which you can tell by their websites. I'll get to that in a second. So it's either a $4,000 filing fee or submit signatures from 7,000 supporters, or you can do a combination of the two. So like you could give $2,000 and have 3,500 signatures. Exactly, Jen. You're catching on. You're catching on. I'm so good at math. (laughs) Uh, It says that they cannot be convicted of certain felonies. Yes, you heard that right. Certain (laughs) felonies. I did not look into that because to be honest, I'm scared. I don't want to (laughs) know. And it can't be the actual governor, like, up to recall. He can't also include himself. They have until 59 days before the election to file. So a lot of this has happened very quickly. All of these people have popped onto the ballot. The ballot that we got, it has two questions on it. The first being, should the governor be recalled? And if the governor is recalled, who should be the new governor? Either way, if you vote yes or no on if the governor should be recalled, you can still say who you'd want to succeed the governor. Yes, I actually had to look this up because I was confused. Yes. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm going to, spoiler alert, I'm voting no on the recall. <laughs> Guys, we, we both agree that Governor Newsom is, you know, not the best. <laughs> We're not like thrilled with his performance. <laughs> right. I don't love Gavin Newsom. <laughs> but when you look at the 46 other people who are trying to take his office, I have zero confidence in any of them to do a good job. Yes. And we're going to get into how any of these people can actually even take over. And it's like pretty scary how easy it is for any of these people if he is voted to be recalled. But hold on. Oh, yes, please. So I did look that up because even though I'm voting no on the recall, it is still important for any of you out there who are voting no on the recall. It's still really important for you to vote for a candidate if California votes to recall Newsom. Because what you don't want to happen is for people to say, yes, recall Newsom, and then all these crazy people vote for Angelique or something. Yes, that is an actual... It's Angeline, uh, Jen. Angeline. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's one word. I'm sorry, Angeline. (laughs) It's with a Y. (laughs) We'll get to her in a minute. So... Vote whether you want to recall Newsom, and then also, regardless of how you answer question one, yes, vote for a candidate in case he gets recalled. Yes, 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 yes. Very, very important. If the majority of voters says no to the first question, then the second is moot. Or as Joey would say on Friends, it's moot. It's Cal's opinion. It's a moot. It's a Cal's opinion. Doesn't matter. <laughs> but if more than 50% vote yes then the candidate with the most votes becomes the next governor. And say like in 2003, the winner 
Arnold Schwarzenegger, he had only 48.6% of the vote, which was actually pretty high. Realistically, someone could win with far less of a percentage, like literally 20%. Because there's 46 candidates, as long as it's a majority. So if 20% is the highest majority, that person becomes our next governor. I don't have anything to say here because I'm so disturbed by everything you're telling me. Yes. Let me give you a brief flyover of some of the 46 candidates on the ballot for the special election on September 14th. So we have Republicans that include Kevin Falconer, the former mayor of San Diego, John Cox, a San Diego businessman who recently distinguished himself by touring the state with a live Kodiak bear. Yes, yes, you heard me. He had a live bear with him. Go on. Okay. (laughs) Kevin Kiley, a Republican state assemblyman, Ted Gaines, a member of the State Board of Equalization, and... Caitlyn Jenner, who we've spoken about, a reality television star and former Olympic athlete. They did hold a debate this past week with some of the candidates. Caitlyn Jenner was supposed to be there, but she couldn't because she was filming a reality TV show in Australia. So she missed (laughs) the debate for the governor's race that she is running in because she had a reality TV show to do. This tells you a lot about what we're dealing with. Did you watch the debate? I did not. I am planning to. I think it's important to gain as much information as I can about the candidates because they're widespread. So yes, I will I will watch it, but I haven't yet. Maybe we can watch it together. I should probably watch it too. <laughs> I also have to include someone that after some legal wrangling over a requirement to produce income tax returns, uh, who is the conservative talk show radio host, Larry Elder, and he is also in the fray. And has quickly become the front runner among the challengers. If the issues with his tax return hasn't told you enough, he is a huge supporter of Trump and has said some frightening misinformation about the pandemic as well as some other conspiracies. It's uh, his Twitter is robust with problematic things. Larry Elder was the only other name on the ballot other than Caitlyn Jenner that I recognized, mm-hmm. and I recognized him as a crazy conservative, Rush Mm Limbaugh-esque media host, radio host. Guys, this is terrifying. Go on. (laughs) Well, just in case that didn't freak you out, here you go. (laughs) So an early challenger, the former pornographic film actress, Mary Carey, who ran in the 2003 recall, she dropped out of the race because she was moving to Florida. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So she's busy. She's moving to Florida. But don't you worry. Because the entertainer and former Los Angeles billboard fixture, Angeline, who we were just talking about, will reprise her 2003 candidacy. So let's start there. Let's, let me just deep dive into a couple people real quick. So, yes, Angeline. One name, and that's exactly what you will see on the ballot. <laughs> she is a 70-year-old media personality who is most known for iconic billboards posted around Los Angeles in the 80s, posing suggestively. It was just like her, you know, laying down... And it just said Angeline on it. That was it. That was what the billboards were. Don't worry, you guys. If you really want to see the images from the billboards, you can simply go to our website, angelineforgovernor.com. Her tagline is, I have the key to California. And yes, she is photoshopped onto a gigantic key. Also, her website says the word slogan. And then afterwards, it says, we must party. So, (laughs) so... Guys, honestly, you have to see it to believe it. You don't want to know the saddest part, Jen? No. (laughs) She actually has one of the better websites of all of these candidates. Yeah, didn't you say that 
there was a candidate who uh, said, I'm here for you and misspelled here. Yes, it was H-E-A-R. Here, I'm here for you. I mean, I don't think that was a play on words, you guys. The fact that they spent $4,000 in filing and then they couldn't just put up a simple square space. I know this sounds very millennial of me, but how do you run for governor of California? Like, legitimately. And you don't have a website? Well, that's the thing. If 46 people are running for governor of California, not all of them have to be running legitimately. I mean, how much sheer inner terror is Angeline going to feel whenever they're like, turns out... You win. You win. <laughs> it, you. <laughs> I think she'll be thrilled. Aside from Angeline, as if you needed to know about anybody else, we have a 20-year-old college student... A young heir to the Zaki Farms dynasty. I'm sorry, the Zaki Farms dynasty? Yeah, you know Zaki Farms. They used to be the chicken people, but then they sold that off, I think, to Foster Farms. Now they're the turkey people. So big and poultry. Then <laughs> we have one of my personal favorites, Chauncey Slim Killens. He's a retired correctional officer. He, he's a retired correctional officer named Slim Killens? Yes, Chauncey Slim Killens, and I think we would have to call him Governor Slim, because that seems to be what he goes by. Okay? I guess it's better than Governor Killens. <laughs> we also have, as I mentioned, a series of actors slash some things. Like, there was an aircraft mechanic slash actor. Yes. No, he was an airline auditor slash actor, Lauren. No, this was a mechanic. There is also a retired air... Airport analyst. Oh. I'm not really sure what an airport analyst does. Like maybe they judge whether the Wolfgang Pucks Express was good enough in the <laughs> Dallas airport versus the Denver airport, right? Like that's that's the hot takes I need. <laughs> I can't. Okay. Here's the question, though. Here's a legitimate question. Okay. And I blame. Let's look at Kevin Falconer who, out of all the people you listed, former mayor of San Diego. Yes. Okay. okay. Look, I'm going to do a deep dive on Kevin. He seems legit. Maybe also the other Kevin. There's like 87 Kevins too, right? Yes. Uh-huh. I, out of 46, 33 are named Kevin, I yes. think. <laughs> and the, the Republican state assemblyman. Sure. The problem is that when their name is on the ballot, under Kevin Falconer, it just says business owner. It doesn't say yes. former mayor of San Diego. Yes. If it had said that, I might have looked twice and thought, okay, maybe this guy is legit. You actually have to, like, go on to each of their websites. Yes, and it's overwhelming. There's 46 of them. And I think what's going to happen, and we're going to talk about this today in terms of the media, is the people that have gotten coverage and people that are somewhat famous. There is a Patrick Kilpatrick do you, know, do you know this person? He no, is, but if Patrick Kilpatrick were a TikTok, it would say, tell me your family is Irish Catholic without telling me your family is Irish Catholic. He is kind of the Arnold Schwarzenegger of this election because he uh, is an actor. He's a director, screenwriter. He is running as a Democrat. You know, so sure, like... Look up these people. Also, there are some Republican, there are some Democrat, and then there's a lot of people that are running without any position. Be aware that the next governor does have some control or power ultimately over the majority in the Senate. So something to consider as you're looking at people and considering who you want to have as our next governor. I do have 
a bright side to this, Jen? Would you like to hear the bright side? I sure would. If Newsom remains in office, his term ends in a year. And if he's recalled, his replacement would govern for only about a year until Newsom's term ends, which is January of 2023. So we're not talking about a lot of time for someone to screw up California. I mean... (laughs) Arguably, it's screwed up enough already. So so there will be another election. We've got to go through this again, you guys, in November of 2022 to choose who will serve the next four-year term as governor. And if Newsom is recalled, he also can run again. I'm not sure if the guy will want to. Like, he might just get a vote and sail off. Maybe he'll move to Florida. Who knows? But let's also be real about the fact that bringing in a new person right now in the midst of the pandemic, the fires going on, there is a lot that California is dealing with, and that will definitely interrupt some of the programs and infrastructures that are carrying us through. So things to consider. Vote. Don't vote for Larry Elder. (laughs) Don't vote for Angeline. If you are going to vote to recall Newsom, make an intelligent and an informed decision on who you are voting for in his place. If you are voting to not recall Newsom, make an intelligent and informed decision on who you are voting for in case he gets recalled. This actually matters, guys. It does. It does. I know we can laugh about it because it's... It's so that we don't cry, but it really does matter. And the information is out there. It's so easy to look these people up and find as much information as you'd like on them. So be investigative, do the research. Um, Ballots are out and most of them are mail-in. So it's easy. Drop them off at a location. September 14th is the date. Well, I think that's a (laughs) great, if not depressing, segue. (laughs) into what could arguably be an even more depressing topic for today, media literacy. No, I'm excited. It's going to be great. It's going to be really helpful. Lauren, did you know that the state of Illinois just approved media and news literacy classes at every high school? That's amazing. Yeah. This way students can better discern misinformation. Yes. And I think high school is the place to start. Because when you get into college, you're going to have professors who are going to share information that may be biased based on their opinions. We, as humans, all have our own personal biases. And at public universities, even at private universities, well, definitely at private universities, professors are allowed to bring in their biases to what they are teaching. So I think it's good to start at the high school level, not to mention... In high school, that's when social media usage Mm. really takes off, usually. I mean, I know people are going to say, actually, it starts way earlier, and that's sad. (laughs) But social media usage really starts to take off, so these kids by high school are getting all sorts of information thrown at them. And to prepare them to be good citizens of the U.S. and vote at 18... For them to have this ability to discern media at an earlier age, gosh, like really major. Yes. I have a number of resources that I'm going to link to in the show notes about how to fact check the media, actual websites that you can go to to fact check an article that you're reading. But one of the articles that I read was from NPR and one of the quotes from that article was, what we all need as citizens is to develop more skill in applying our skepticism. We need to spot false narratives and also turn aside those who would replace them with pure fiction. Mm -hmm. So this episode is going to be about three things. One, how to discern biases in the media and in ourselves. Two, how to differentiate between 
types of news articles and figure out which news articles are credible. And three, how to know what to care about and take action on and then when to look away also. Mm, I really like that. I'm really glad we're talking about these three things. All very important. The last one is something I've been struggling with. It's like I want to be educated on important issues. So what are the issues that I need to educate myself on? Like really dive in, whether it's hard, which it is, and also know what are the things that maybe... I don't need to know about that are affecting my mental and emotional health that like I can protect myself from. Yeah. We can't care about everything. Yes. We can feel empathy for what's going on in certain parts of the world. We can absolutely pray for people, Mm -hmm. but you can't take action on or become an activist even on every single issue. So I do have a master's degree in communication and I'm going to put that to use today. I went to school for broadcast journalism in undergrad. But guys, that was a long time ago. It was long before social media. So I do want to recognize that a lot has changed and we have citizen journalists Mm -hmm. now. And I think that that has really thrown a wrench into how we create news and how we consume it. Yes. I heard someone say that they think we're living in a post-truth era. And Sad. Then nothing, yeah. <laughs> Sad. We can't trust anyone. We can't trust mm-hmm. any media outlets. There is no truth. I don't know that we're living in a post-truth era as much as a post-trust era mm, where yes. we just don't trust anyone or anything. And I do think that we should all very critically analyze what information we are consuming and believing. But I don't think, and I'm going to say this to start the episode, I don't think that every single media outlet is out there to misinform you or deceive you. Yes. I do know that most journalists, and I'm going to say, honestly, even some journalists at Fox News, not all, Mm -hmm. but even some journalists at places like Fox News are legitimately trying to do a good job And bring people information that they need to know in order to make an informed decision about the world around them. Mm -hmm. So I do approach media from a lens of skepticism and the need to critically analyze it. But also, I don't think there's some grand conspiracy. And I do think that that we can have a baseline of trust for most major media outlets. So Jen, based on your education, which is so helpful to all of us, that are diving into this topic today. Do you have any tips for us on how to discern biases in the media? Because as you said, we can trust a baseline of some of these larger media outlets, but we do know that they have bends. You know, they kind of bend to the left, to the right, for different reasons. How do we take that information in and then discern the biases ourselves? Yeah, that's a great question. And I do have tips for that. But first, I think it's also important to talk about how to discern biases in ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's pretty easy. Anytime that we read or hear or watch something and we start to feel defensive or we start to feel the hair stand up on the back of our necks or we get upset by it, that's usually indicative of one of two things. Either what you just heard or read is inflammatory, immoral, or downright wrong, which there's a lot of that out Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Or it's not necessarily inflammatory, immoral, or downright wrong, but it goes against a deeply held belief or a value or an opinion that we have. 
And having beliefs and values and opinions and even biases are not wrong in and of themselves. But if they lead us to interpret information in a certain way that may not be true, Mm. then that's where the problem comes in. Okay, so what do we do with our biases that are naturally in us? We acknowledge them. Mm. I think asking the question that we talked about with Beth Allison Barr a few weeks ago and that you talked about in last week's episode on faith, deconstruction, and reconstruction, it's so important. Like, even talking about this issue, it's like, what if I'm wrong? Yes. Having a posture of curiosity when we consume the news is incredibly important. When we feel a bias, we acknowledge it, we ask, what if I'm wrong? And we maintain that posture of curiosity. Do you think it's valuable to look at opposing views of an issue or say if you know you have a more liberal stance on an issue, look at what the more conservative news outlets are saying? 100% yes. I think it's important to look at a wide variety of media outlets. If you acknowledge that you have a certain bias on an issue one way or another, I think it's important to look at the opposing views. And this can be painful. I'm going to acknowledge it. I don't always want to look at what Fox News is reporting on, but... I do think that it's necessary to evaluate all sides of an issue Mm -hmm. and how look at how different media outlets are reporting on something in order to formulate your own mostly unbiased opinion. We have to separate facts from feelings, though. Yes, that's a really good point. And I think what you said about looking at the opposing sides of things also makes sure that we're not living in our own echo chambers because as we've learned, it's much more comfortable there to, to sit with people that believe the same way we do and just, you know, help give value to the feelings we already have. So it's really important that we stay humble, stay curious, and we look at what else is out there and what other people are talking about. When we talk about media outlets and biases, have you found any media outlets that are actually unbiased? Like truly? Well, There are a few media outlets and reporters that I trust more than others. Mm -hmm. I will say that. I really trust the Wall Street Journal. It's one of the only newspapers that still fact checks every story before publishing. I generally trust the New York Times. The Wall Street Journal has a much more conservative bent to things, and the New York Times has a more liberal bent to things. And I have found personally, if you're asking my opinion, that in reading the way that the Wall Street Journal is reporting on something... And reading the way that the New York Times is reporting on something has given me a good mix Mm. of both sides of an issue. In addition to those two major media outlets, I follow Smart Her News on Instagram. It's a cheesy, cheesy name. (laughs) Uh, But Jenna, who runs it, is a former journalist. She's very good at reporting on both sides of an issue in a relatively unbiased manner. Jessica Yellen, who is a former CNN White House correspondent, She's also very good at reporting unbiased news, and both Jenna and Jessica have a really unique perspective on the news because they come from major media outlets, and they know how the news is reported as well as how it should be Mm. reported. In the morning, I I don't start off my day with NPR's Up First podcast, but I generally at some point over the course of my morning listen to their Up First podcast. It does a good job of laying out just the main news stories for each day without giving much, if any, opinion. And then I also subscribe to a newsletter called The Flip Side. It comes out about once a week. It outlines the main news stories of the week and what both sides of the political aisle are saying. So Republican and Democrat, conservative, liberal, what they're saying about an issue. And then The Skim. I don't know that The Skim is completely unbiased, but I do like just seeing what's going on in the world around me every day. Mm -hmm. You know, another important conversation to have, though, is that instead of just 
talking about media bias, we do have to talk about how to discern which specific articles are credible. Because even within the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, let's say, every media outlet, whether they want to or not, they're going to have some sort of bias. These news articles are written by humans. Humans are flawed. They have biases. They make mistakes. So it's good to look at how to discern if specific articles, not just specific media outlets, are credible as well. Okay, so what makes a news article, regardless of what media outlet it is published on, more or less credible? That's a great question. Um, Jessica Yellen, the former White House correspondent for CNN, who I mentioned earlier, was actually on Sharon McMahon's podcast a few weeks ago. Lauren, do you follow Sharon McMahon on Instagram? Her handle is at Sharon says so. No, I don't. So she's a former high school government teacher. Oh, I love it. Mm-hmm. Who started posting about politics and government at the beginning of 2020 to just help people kind of discern fact from fiction. A lot of people were saying that things weren't constitutional. And she would actually break down on her social media account, well, here's what the Constitution actually says. No one's more passionate than a high school government teacher. Like, really? (laughs) Yes. She has amassed a huge following and helped me determine what is or is not true when it comes to what government can and can't do. I've actually read the Constitution because of her. Have you read the Constitution, Lauren? What a weird brag that is, Jen. It's a weird flex. (laughs) It's a weird flex. flex. (laughs) Um, Okay, does memorizing the preamble in high school count? Sure. Okay, great. I mean, honestly, it's more than most people have done. <laughs> I think I think my high school government teacher actually made us read the Constitution. But let's be honest, in high school, I had just like a very different idea of how the world worked than I do now as a 30-something. So probably important for me to revisit it. Yeah. I won't lie to you. I did learn a few things when I read the Constitution, right? But I just really like to do a full flex on people when they say <laughs> something is unconstitutional. I'm like, huh, have you read the Constitution? And... <laughs> Because I have. Sick burn, dude. Sick burn. (laughs) Anyways, so Jessica said on Sharon's podcast, she said that there's three things that you need to do when you start to read a news article. One, check the news outlet that it's being published on. Mm -hmm. So like I said earlier, certain news outlets have a specific bent or bias. They're also owned by certain people who might have a specific bent or bias. So... For instance, Fox News is owned by Rupert Murdoch. And looking at what other media outlets he might own in the U.S., I mean, if Rupert Murdoch is allowing Fox News to do and say the things that they are doing and saying, what else might he allow in Mm -hmm. other media outlets? The New York Post, yuck, is owned by (laughs) Rupert Murdoch. And actually, the Wall Street Journal is owned by Murdoch as well. They have done a pretty good job of operating independently of the other... uh, muckraking mags in <laughs> in his sphere, but they are owned by uh, Rupert Murdoch. Do you know who the Washington Post is owned by, Lauren? Um, is it Jeff Bezos? Mm-hmm. That's it weird. Sure That's so strange. Sure is. Jeff can't get his hands out of everything. Do you know <laughs> what the Washington Post's tagline is? No, I don't. Democracy dies in the dark. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's so intense. <laughs> Honestly, you guys, that should tell you a lot. Jeff, and are like, you okay? <laughs> Lauren, he just went to outer space in a penis. He's not okay. You think he's overcompensating for something, Jen? I sure do. 
So another good question to ask whenever you're looking at the media outlet is whether they fact check or not, and do they have a paid editorial staff? Because mm. you and I both know yes. from working in publishing that there ain't a lot of money lying around there. No, surprisingly not. Mm-mm. I know, it's so weird. But if a news outlet pays an editorial staff, it doesn't mean that they're completely unbiased. It doesn't mean that they're definitely fact-checking everything, but it does mean that they have a certain commitment level to figuring out whether the reporter has done their due diligence and their research. So again, media outlets like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, they do have a paid editorial staff. I could not find an editorial staff on Fox News. I won't lie to you. How strange. (laughs) In looking at the news outlet as a whole, to who they're owned by, whether they have an editorial staff, whether they have printed corrections went wrong and cited sources for why they were wrong, I think that's a good thing to look at. I mean, humility is good, especially in journalism, guys. Yes. So the second question that Jessica says is good to ask, or the second thing I should say that Jessica said is good to do whenever you're evaluating a news article is to look at whether it is considered news, opinion, which Mm. is sometimes called editorial, yes, or analysis. News should be like just straight facts. And each news article should have two independent, reputable sources cited and linked to. Mm. And we're going to come back to that in a minute because it's important. Editorial and opinion pieces are just that. Like, they are biased. They are someone's opinion talking about what they think about a certain issue. And then analysis can kind of go either way. It's taking the news and making predictions or drawing conclusions from it. And there's value in that, but only if you are, again, drawing from actual reliable data and research to begin with. It's so relevant that you point this out because a lot of times, especially if you're reading um, an article or something like that, it actually will say at the top, like opinion or editorial or analysis, like because the media outlet is wanting to be deemed as credible and keep their integrity, they will put these little like hidden messages. <laughs> like we did it in magazines where someone would pay to be in the magazine, but due to like the integrity of editorial, they keep that separate and it would say advertisement or they'd pay for something called an advertorial, which was like... Oh, I'm familiar adver- with the advertorial. <laughs> an advertised editorial piece it's like the writers from editing worked with advertising to create this piece but they had to deem it as such so some of this is right out there for us to see and it's really important that we recognize when something is labeled opinion and it's fine to read opinions i think we trust a lot of people to say well what do they think about this but you do have to keep going back to the fact this is written as an opinion absolutely The last thing that Jessica Yellen says that you should consider when reading the news, because I know we have to land this plane, (laughs) is the title and the wording of the title and the wording of the subtitle and the wording of the captions. This is something that both conservative and liberal media are guilty of, Mm -hmm. sensationalizing the headlines to get people riled up before they even read the article. Yes. And they're looking for those clicks. Absolutely. So I'm going to pick on the Washington Post here because I don't want people to think that I'm just picking on conservative media. So in the Washington Post, one of the top headlines from yesterday read, in Florida, DeSantis cut jobless aid just as virus began new terrifying wave. When was the last terrifying wave of Delta? Yes. Oh, it ongoing. Mm-hmm. Right. 
I think it's important to look at words in titles like terrifying, yes. scary, darkest yes. days ever. Yes. It's important to look at the font that mm-hmm. media outlets are using. It's important to look at, if you're looking at a website, the colors. It's important to look at the other articles that are being linked to at the end of the articles that you're reading. So when you go to, when you scroll down on some media outlets, this is what you were talking about earlier, Lauren, at the end of an article, usually more reputable media outlets have links to other articles that they have written. Yes. Less reputable news outlets will link to external websites from, you know, really reputable places like, uh, who dies org or something like that, you know? <laughs> is that a real is that a real website? I'm sure. <laughs> Another headline in a more conservative media outlet that shall not be named was Schumer Pelosi panned for dancing with Stephen Colbert, Napa fundraiser, as Biden's presidency under siege. First of all, that headline Ooh. doesn't even make a ton of sense. No. And the word presidency was misspelled in the title of that headline. Oh, no. Guys, if a news outlet doesn't care about spelling a major headline correctly, that's a big red flag. I doubt they're worrying about the facts. But to say that Biden's presidency is under siege, technically it's not wrong because the secondary definition of under siege is being seriously attacked or criticized by people. But the primary definition of the term under siege is surrounded by soldiers or police officers. Yeah, it's very, I mean, the intensity of that statement. Exactly. That's it. It's the intensity of the words used. So words like terrifying, under siege, horrible, those are all kind of red flag words that we should, that should get our hackles up a little bit when we're reading Mm -hmm. the, uh, the news. Yes, absolutely. So when we click on these inflammatory articles, the problem is that it, tells that media outlet, whether conservative or liberal, that we want more of that. Yes, it's very true. Our action, just in clicking, does create some type of a wave or a ripple effect in terms of what they continue to put out. Mm -hmm. Sarah on Pantsuit Politics, which is one of my very favorite uh, political podcasts, she says, you have to deprive the inflammatory stuff of oxygen Mm. and learn to say, well, I don't agree with that, or I don't agree with you, and and move on. Mm-hmm. And I think that is really, really important. We also have to remember, and I heard ta Coates say this on another podcast, that it's the narrative that allows the policies to be passed. So when these media outlets are using words like under siege or terrifying or horrible, they're trying to weave a narrative yes. that riles people up so that they will recall the governor, you know, call for someone else's head, all that sort of stuff. Yes. Fear is a tactic that a lot of less reputable media outlets use. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to approach everything with such a critical, critical lens. Okay. So the last thing I think we should talk about, Jen, is this question of how to know what news to care about and take action on and when to walk or look away. Okay. So do you have any thoughts or suggestions on that? Me? Have thoughts? (laughs) Never. (laughs) I think this is where we can look at what's going on in Afghanistan as a great thing to analyze here. So in a 24-hour news cycle, when we're still dealing with COVID, we're coming off a crazy year like 2020, hearing about what's going on in Afghanistan is very overwhelming for most people. Yeah. It's too much, honestly. And that generally causes people to do one of two things. One, 
they become so invested in the situation and overly emotional about it. Or two, they completely ignore it. And I think there's a a better third option here. Mm -hmm. So when I heard that the Taliban had taken over Afghanistan, this happened on the same week that the boys were getting ready to go back to school, and I was personally dealing with some big decisions in our family and in my own life. And I put my phone away last week. I didn't look at what was going on anywhere in the world. I stayed off social media. I prayed about and focused on my own decisions. And that's not selfish. That's protecting my own peace. Mm -hmm. But then after a break, when I had some more mental space to come back to it, I went back online. I looked at what was going on in Afghanistan. I listened to some podcasts about the issue. And I did some research on what I could possibly do. And sometimes when you do that research, you realize, wow, there's really nothing other than pray that is within my realm of possibility for what to do. And that is okay. Yeah. We cannot take action on everything. Mm -hmm. I did find an organization called Global Catalytic Ministries. They're doing a lot of work to get women and children and specifically Christians out of Afghanistan. So I donated some money to them. Only $25, guys. I don't want you to think that I was like, you know, this is not a weird flex. It was only 25 (laughs) bucks. I think we need to remind ourselves first and foremost, it's okay to take a break. Yeah. It's okay to step back and put our phones down Mm -hmm. and say, I can't handle that right now. Maybe I'll come back to it later but it's okay to take a break. I also think we have to ask ourselves these questions. One, is this something that I can handle right now? Yeah. Is it helpful or harmful to my mental health? And I think that that there's an important distinction. Like, I'm a very empathetic person, so hearing about the earthquake in Haiti or the Taliban taking over Afghanistan, it's heartbreaking and it's going to make me really sad. But there there are other things, you know, people who are survivors of domestic abuse. You don't need to read any articles about domestic abuse. For black Americans, reading or hearing about other people of color, other black Americans who have suffered or died because of police brutality, like that's just Mm re-traumatizing. So I think that you have to step away completely if something is harmful for your mental health. Also asking yourself, what good will it do me to spend time here on this issue? Is this something that I can legit help with? Mm -hmm. Or is this just something that I'm going to spiral about and it's going to distract me from taking care of my little corner of the world in my community? What lessons can I learn? I think that's another question. And at the end of the day, what can I do? And Mm -hmm. sometimes the answer is I can't do anything and that's okay. Yeah. And I'm sorry. I feel like that was just a really long and rambling. No way to talk about the news and media literacy. You know, obviously, as you guys all know, like, this is such a complicated, multifaceted topic, and it's constantly changing. I mean, think about, like you were saying, when you were in school studying journalism, to now, what the media has become, these 24-hour news cycles. I mean, it's social media. it's, It's all changed quite a bit and continues to. So... At the end of the day, it's going to change. It's going to constantly shift. There's going to be battles on social media that we can't really do much about. But the biggest thing is that we take responsibility and authority over what we put into our minds and what we look at, what we listen to, and also how we metabolize it. Like, what do we do with that information? How do we discern it and... It is very important that we sit with this a bit and figure out what are our boundaries and also what are our rules for discerning the news. And Jen, you gave us some really good ones. So we'll put all of that info 
in the show notes in maybe a very digestible way so you guys can look back at it and kind of think about those things for yourself. And yeah, we're, I mean, we're here to do the hard things, the complicated things, talk about the 46 candidates that are up for the gubernatorial recall election. Guys, it's complicated, but it's worth talking about. So I'm going to say one more thing. Social media should never be the primary place that you get your news from. Amen. Never. Yes. Even following CNN on social media should not be the primary place that you get your news from. Yeah. You should always go back to the source. And if you're getting your news from a media outlet or a person on social media, you have to look at their sources. Yes. We hope this is helpful, you guys. Lauren, I don't even know that we should do hot stuff today. Oh, no. I think we can save it because, you guys, next week is our L's of August. What month is it? August? Sure. Oh, my gosh. We made it. So we'll have a lot of hot stuff in that. That's where we talk about all of our favorite things from the month, things we like to watch, listen to, look at. So join us for that, and that'll give you maybe some, like, really fun, lighthearted things to pick up your mood after everything that's been going on. We could all use a little pick-me-up. Yeah. (laughs) So... If it wasn't clear before, I think it is today that we truly feel life is too short to stay silent. Thanks for raging with us.